Welcome to One Heart, One Mind, a podcast of the Nampa, Idaho South Stake to inspire and give hope in our efforts to build Zion. And now your host, Lindy Bauer. Hi, welcome to today's podcast, One Heart, One Mind, Nampa. I'm Lindy Bauer, your host. And tonight we are joined with uh, President Sister Nygaard. They are uh, president of the Boise, Idaho Mission. And we are so happy to have them here. Um, missionaries throughout the valley love them. Community members throughout the valley love them. Um, and we're excited to get to know them on a personal level tonight. They come from St. George, Utah. Um, and prior to serving as mission president here, President Nygaard was a pediatrician and Sister Nygaard, a master's degree in linguistics and was teaching English and German. And they have four kids, two boys, two girls, and two grandchildren. You might want to say hello to them on here. Hi. Yeah. We're, we're so grateful to be with you. We're glad you're here. Well, let's, let's just jump right into things. Um, let's start with your story where you two first first meet. Tell us how you met. Tell us how how that all started. You go ahead and I'll give a rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> I usually start and then she gives the rebuttal. Well, we knew uh, we, we grew up basically in the same neighborhood, in the same ward. Did you grow up in St. George? In Salt Lake City. Salt Lake, okay. Yeah, we raised our family in, in St. George, so the last 25 years is where we were. But We had kids in every in a different state, each state, different kid, and then <laughs> the last kid was born in St. George, and that we're calling that home because that was 25 years. But we both grew up in Salt Lake City area. Um, Marty is one year older than I am, and you know how the the... Beehives and the teachers don't really talk, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, so we, I, the group that was my age was really big. So there were plenty of people to know in that group. And uh, and my group was big too. Yeah. It was, we were in the baby boom, so there were a lot of kids in our neighborhood. I I remember him, and he says he remembers me playing the organ with the scowl. Um, yeah. But. Uh, her mom, her mom made sure she got a calling so she'd come to church to play the organ. You played the organ as a, as a youth. Yeah. 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 That's, that's impressive. You don't see that very often. Yeah. It's one way to get your daughter to go to church because <laughs> they notice that the organist doesn't come. Just a um, little bit. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, do you ever remember having a conversation? I mean, we no, I don't probably think we said I mean, we were, in, we were in the same schools, but we didn't. We had totally different circles of friends. And in retrospect, that was good um, because uh, she had a very different path in her youth than I did. And I think if I'd have known her well, when we did connect later, I would have had to overcome. I didn't have any prejudice about what she'd done in the past because I didn't know her then. But his mom did. But my mom, mom did. <laughs> she was camp. She was the camp leader and the young women's oh, leader. Oh, those camp leaders—they yeah, know. They take and, it. Uh, and Louise had had created some excitement at girls' camp a few years. So you can't make camp boring, right? Oh no, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's open opportunity. But we have friends, mutual friends, who say, "I wish I could go up to you in high school and say." You're going to marry Louise Libert. <laughs> and you're going to marry Marty Knight. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. watch the stunned surprise. But when I, uh, uh, I ended up serving a mission, although I had never planned on serving a mission. When I came home from my where, mission. Where did you serve at? I served in Germany. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was in medical school living at home. So um, 
when I came home, um, we he was teaching the young adult Sunday school class, and and I just I had a, a crush on him because he could he could explain things like nobody else I knew, and just just the smartest guy I ever knew. <laughs> and uh, he always talked about all these dates he went on, but he claims they were just all first dates. They were all first dates. <laughs> <laughs> And he, I remember one time he said, I really, I need to repent. I said, okay, here we go. He says, I go to too many movies. It's like, get some real sins here, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need to repent from. Uh, anyway. It's pretty distracting. Yeah. So yeah. We, we knew each other, but we didn't get to know each other until we were um, 20. I was 23. You were 24. 24. Yeah, in in his first year, no, third no, third, third year of medical school. school. A medical school in Salt Lake? Yes, yeah, at, the at the University of Utah. Utah. And then okay. she was at the University of Utah studying linguistics. And we just became friends. We had a group. It was before they had a lot of uh, singles word, unless you were at the, unless you were at the university. And so we had a big group of singles in our area. And uh, we would do activities. We had a we would get together at her house actually every Sunday night and have a study group and 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 sing. We'd stand around the piano and sing and that was a lot of fun. And so those skills came in handy. <laughs> yeah. 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 So her dad her dad joked that she was weeding all out, you know, they the group got smaller and smaller. And what he used to say is, Yeah, I'd come home from he was he was a church leader and he, he'd come home in the evening and the group was getting smaller and smaller, and and then uh, I I would come home and it just be and it was just Marty and Louise studying, and then one time I came home and they weren't studying anymore. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah. it, was, it was a um, it was a friendship that just blossomed gradually. We actually became team teachers of that Sunday school class, and so that helped our friendship grow. And then officially started dating. Yeah, it was the it was a kind of a ward. It was a very it was a curiosity. I remember going for a Sunday walk and people turning heads like, oh, that's Marty and Louise together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people were very interested. Yeah, in the neighborhood, um, not a, in Salt Lake at that time. You, you usually didn't connect with people in right in your neighborhood, although. Um, yeah, my sister married Her a sister guy in our ward, too. My next-door neighbor. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And then you were married. What year were you married? 85. Married in 85. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. So we yeah. knew each other for about a year. And then yeah. called it called it an item. Yeah. And I remember watching, uh, wondering why he limped. Oh, also, the other memory I have of him as a young man was his, his mother bought I, I assumed he didn't pick them himself. No, my mom. But it was in the sixties and the seventies, and he wore these really loud bell-bottom pants <laughs> and a dark red shirt to pass the sacrament. It was before the white shirt. And a mod <laughs> and a mod tie. It's like, whoa. <laughs> Things have changed a bit. No, no, yeah. Never said anything. You know, no, the bishop never said you should wear a white shirt. Or anything. <laughs> So that was okay. Uh, yeah, I, I just wore whatever she told me to wear. <laughs> I look back on that with, yeah, I can't believe I wore that. 
<laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so take take us through. So now jump forward to you're married, and you you both. Um, I, this is my first time hearing your story, but you both have uh, your different unique challenges and circumstances and things you have had to overcome. Let's jump into that. How was that learning that together as a, as a couple, and what what were those unique uh, challenges? Well, I I was born with cerebral palsy. I was not a premature baby, but I had premature lungs, and so I had side effects from that, including a brain injury. And cerebral palsy is, in a general term, it just means you have a brain injury. It's like a stroke in infancy. And so I have left-sided weakness or hemiparesis and limited use of my left hand and limp and my left leg. And um, so I, I couldn't, you know, I wasn't very good at sports growing up, even though I love sports and my my brothers and my dad were really quite good athletes, um, but I couldn't I couldn't do that. So uh, when I got to junior high, I finally was able to shift my my interest more to the academic realm. And I'm sure that that experience of having those weaknesses and those physical limitations sent me in a direction that I wouldn't have gone otherwise. You know, I I may have gotten to medical school anyway but it would have been a more roundabout route. Oh, and shout out to an eighth grade health teacher. Yeah, and English teacher. And English teacher. I I had an English teacher in eighth grade who saw something in me that I didn't see myself. My seventh year, my seventh grade year was really bad year. I didn't do well in school. I was having a hard time adjusting socially to junior high at the time because seventh grade started junior high in our area. And, uh, had a really rough year, but I had an, a health teacher who was really great and an English teacher who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and they encouraged me to to study in new ways, and it, it changed my direction really significantly. And I became I became much more interested in in academics and learning about English and and um, reading, and I loved health class. I thought. I'd love to do something that I could learn more about the body. Now, what was your family's support like for you during that time? It was outstanding. <laughs> My parents were just really wonderful. They, it was a bit of a protective environment because of um, my weakness. They were, you know, they worried about me. Um, my dad, I would want to do baseball and stuff like that, and he, he would. He would play with me, and we would we would do it. But he didn't want to give me false hope that I could ever be as good as all the other kids because I had I had some significant limitations. But they were very supportive, and we did a lot of family activities together. My dad is a carpenter uh, and contractor, and so he was very much. He would encourage me to do to come to work with them and do manual labor, which because of my limitations ended up being a cleanup, which I didn't like very much, <laughs> which which sent me more to academics as well because I was the cleanup crew. My brothers became really able craftsmen in a lot of ways, but I never I never went went down that road. Are you all boys in your family? No, I have two brothers and two sisters. Oh, okay. I was the oldest. Okay. He has an aunt and uncle that own a, own a farm that uh, that they used to go out and be farmhand during the summer. 
And so on his medical application, his school, you know, previous work experience, one of them was farmhand. And that was often a topic of conversation, yeah. something that made him stand out, not your typical um, yeah. medical school no, applicant. I had, I had a cousin who was my age, and then he had older brothers and sisters that lived on the farm. And so I, I would go out there every summer. And we, had a, we had great experiences with that. And I could... I could. I learned how to move water lines, and so I could do that kind of physical labor. And he survived with all ten digits. Yeah. So. <laughs> Still have all ten fingers. That's a feat. Not, not all farmers do. No. Yeah. <laughs> or part-time farmhands too. Yeah, Louis, uh, how did that, how did that affect? How, how did his challenge uh, with cerebral palsy affect um, your perception and your, um, I don't know, your understanding of him as a person? Well, in the beginning and throughout marriage. Yeah, I think um, I, I could see that he was the protected favorite oldest son, you know, and that's one reason why his mother really kind of held back on or wasn't ready to see him go to the to me. Um, oh. But he, uh, I remember him telling me that he he figured if God didn't want him to go to medical school, he wouldn't get in, or that if he couldn't be a doctor, that he wouldn't have made it. Through me- into medical school, and he just has an a, amazing memory, and you know, it's it's his brain and rugged good looks that attracted me to him. <laughs> and uh, you know, I like he dances. Yeah, I like the sound of rugged. Good yeah. Looks. <laughs> it's just because I'm old now. Yeah. No, he he. Um, you know he doesn't have very good balance but he runs he's a you know he's i don't i don't yeah know i found how that i could do a lot of things us. that i didn't think i could do um, um as an adult in st george i learned how to golf i golf with one arm i did i've run a number of marathons most people can't yeah, golf with two arms yeah That's you know, he does really he does really well and uh i remember when i'm um, in medical school that the, the there's a Disabled physicians or something, some uh, some group that wanted yeah. you to join them, and he said, "Well, I don't want to be defined by a disability," mm-hmm. um, and so he's not. It was a. It felt like it was quite militant in its in its advocacy, and I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I'd been limited in any way. So I didn't. I didn't. It just didn't feel like the right fit for. Well, he doesn't have the doctor personality or ego. He'll ask for help if he needs if he needs help, and he'll ask for a referral. And so, he learned to do a lot of technical things with one hand, and he's taught some of his patients how to button buttons, tie their shoes, those that have a similar mm-hmm. um, condition. And um, yeah, I did attract some patients who had cerebral palsy. They heard they heard about me, and so they bring. Parents would bring their kids to come and see me, and, uh, and it was, that was really fun to watch them grow up and give them a bit of a different outlook on what they could do right. with their lives, rather than the limits they sometimes saw. But it, it's uh, it's a difficult. I mean, I look back on my childhood, and you feel when you're a kid and you're not able to do the things that other kids do. You know, there is an element of why this happened to me and that kind of thing. Um, but I look back on it now and 
I really do consider it a blessing because of the direction that, that it sent me in. And your children, how did they, uh, obviously they don't, that's, they don't know any different. No. But you having known, can you see how that's affected them, how it's shaped their, their lives or influenced? Sure. Well, I didn't. Obviously, I didn't play sports with them as much as other dads do. Yeah. I coached, and I'm kind of I the camper. I always push the camping trips because I like to camp. And yeah. And Marty was kind of scarred by his scouting experience. <laughs> <laughs> We'd go camping for and fun. And our fathers and sons experience. <laughs> there were like four years in a row where fathers and sons outings were just a disaster. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Cancel that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he, um, you know, he he used to wonder why he survived, and you know didn't get the straight ticket to the celestial kingdom. You know, as as a, dying as an infant. You know, before age of eight, and uh, yeah. Well, that doctrine of comfort from Joseph Smith is a very comforting doctrine. Doctrine when you lose a child. That if, if your child dies in, as a young child, that you'll be able to raise them later, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful doctrine. And yet, if you're one of those children who survives, as a teenager, I used to think, well, I must have just missed the cut. I wasn't good enough to just kind of skip through. And uh, I wondered about that for many, many years. And I, uh, I was at a, I was at a. A devotional one Sunday night with with a leader who was talking about an incident of of a of a little boy who had been rescued from a mine. He was just, he was on a scout trip and he got lost. It was a, it was a very well publicized story down in Utah at the time. I was I was in our I was probably in my early thirties at the time when it happened and. He, after three days, he was found. And there were a lot of miracles involved in him being found and discovered. And he was safe, and he felt like he'd been ministered to by angels and that kind of thing. And then the speaker said, after describing all of these miraculous events that brought him back to his family, what about all the people that aren't saved? Are they, you know, were their parents less righteous? Did they have less faith when they prayed? And, and you know, was, what, what was the difference? And I just had this really powerful impression at the time that you chose to come back. You're here because you chose. I gave you a choice. And you chose to come back and be here. Now, that was very comforting that it wasn't that I was not good enough to go to heaven, <laughs> obviously. And, and since I've heard other, other leaders talk about the fact that if everybody that was really good went to heaven as infants, this, the world would be even worse than it is. You know? <laughs> so it doesn't mean that that's not that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that all the good people get to get to skip this. It's it, it you know we we don't know all those factors obviously of why some some people live to a good old age and other people uh, leave so so urgently in in infancy, but. It was just a really powerful experience to realize I chose to be here, and that changed everything. 
because I, okay, I guess there's a reason that I chose to be here, so I've got to figure that out. And so I've been trying to do that ever since. And I was on a trip to Israel, and the person that was the tour guide, this was and this was years later. This was, I guess, in 2011 when we went to Israel. And I was, I, I, we were talking about things, and I told him that story, and he said, "Well, I know why you went. I know why you came back." I said, "Really? You do? What? <laughs> why?" And he said, "Because of love. Because you love people, and you love, uh, you love your family, and you." You wanted to be with them in this life, and that really resonated. And I, and so I was grateful to have that second piece that I'd made the choice, and now I know why I made the choice. And, and it's it's certainly manifested in our life together, and the, the kids that we have, and the experiences that I have, in the service that I do, and the, the service that I was able to do as a pediatrician, and and in the service I do in the church and kingdom of God. So. Pretty big blessing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it if, if the cerebral palsy or what it is, but M- Marty is humbled to a fault. Um, he apologizes for things that are not his fault. <laughs> Our kids joke around and call him a walking apology because he'll say, "I'm sorry for everything." No, <laughs> but he, um, I I think he 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 really does feel like he's less than. But he's, and it just makes him all the more lovable. But his memory, he relates so well with the children. He he relates to the parents. And the fact that he can remember names is really remarkable. Um, I don't know how many patients he's he's had. He's had like a second generation of patients, um, children of his patients. And and third. But we'll go somewhere in public um, in St. George where he, he... was in his own practice for a long time um, and a, a child would just stand off kind of they'd recognize him and kind of stand there and wait for Marty to recognize him and call him by name and he, he'd remember the name he'd remember the condition he'd remember the uh, the parents the family situation it was I, I, I felt like we couldn't go I felt like when I went into public I was with a Disney character that everybody wanted to talk to, and he was he was one of the torchbearers when the uh, Olympics came to Salt Lake City. So he he got to carry the torch the second to the last um, leg of the journey, and in in St. George, they yeah. went they went all through the state. Yeah, and that was that was really that was a really fun experience. Right. So he was nominated for that because it didn't help my patients like me any better. There, there was a really funny incident in that that I, I walked up to this family that I knew and they had a two year old girl and she saw me and immediately just started screaming. She, <laughs> she knew I was Doctor Knight, even though I was dressed as a torchbearer and had a torch in my hand. You're not fooling me. You're still the guy that gives me shots. I don't, don't give me a shot. <laughs> No, I I think yeah, great greater compassion. I mean, I don't know. You can't know what I, what I am, might have been. Uh, my memory is fading. I have a harder time with names than I used to, but but I am I am grateful for the memory that, that the Lord's given me. Yeah, and I hope I can remember things as long as President Monson remembered things. Oh, well, that would be nice. Yes, In for all 90s. of us, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh. But he 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 remembers epic poetry. 
and he he would recite long poems. He he would do the whole Grinch by memory for his family with all these different voices, and they would just exchange. I mean, the dinner conversation at their house was always very lively because it was um, movie quotes and um, imitations, and and he thought only his family would appreciate what he does. But I. I call him, he was a closet ham. He was not willing to get out of the closet and entertain other people um, <laughs> until he realized that I was a big fan too and I didn't have to think he was wonderful. <laughs> well, you, after you married me, you had to think I was pretty Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I became his agent and his publicist. And, number and my one band. Fan she club. She was also my lovely Yeah, band. yeah. So he, he he started, when did you start doing that? He started writing parodies of different songs and... Um, yeah, it was it was mostly after we got married. Yeah. Yeah, I'd write parodies. And, but we need to talk about you. No, no, I want I want you to do some of this. <laughs> let, let's, let, let's do, let's jump into your story too, Lisa. <laughs> we want to hear your story. I, I, what were your obstacles, your... I had a real, um, well, just like like Joseph Smith at about age 14, I was just obsessed with this question, and that was, does God think of women are equal to men? I really felt like there was evidence that he only liked men, <laughs> you know? They're only mentioned in the Bible. They're only, you know, I, I, I really thought... Um, that my my culture and my religion were telling me that I was a second class citizen, and my mom, um, my mother was very deferential to my husband to her husband. Um, Dad wasn't mean, but he was very stern, and we had a lot of really strict rules at our house, and um, and so I I I had a big issue with the women's role, what a tradition, what was defined as a traditional women's role. And, um, and I wanted to be an individual. You know, I think every kid at some point, it's, I think it's age 13 and 14 for many of us, where we want to know who we really are, you know, why we're doing things, what's our motivation. Um, and I, uh, I, I just had I had an attitude about the church because it was also during the the bicentennial. So this was way back in 1976. Um, the uh, they had the International Year of the Woman, and the church came out very publicly against the Equal Rights Amendment. And I I thought this is evidence of prejudice, and um, I I felt like. I, I couldn't reconcile that with what I felt in my heart. So I, I was proud. I was all proud. And Marty was like humble to the core <laughs> and very judgmental. And I started to really just, I, I read everything I could find before, you know, we had the internet. I went to the library and looked up everything under a certain Dewey Decimal number. And it was all, you know, it was all about women's rights. And, um, so I could spout off all these statistics, and just, I was, I was a smart, smart mouth kid. Um, you had that memory gift too, huh? Uh, yeah, for some things, things that I, yeah. And I remember my mom and dad, who 
you know, they they raised me in about as faithful an environment as you could have, you know. And I remember mom saying, where are you getting these ideas? What was, number are you in your family? I'm number four girl. Four girl. And then we have two boys okay. after me. And um, I said, I just think about things. You know, she says, well, somebody's giving you all these ideas, you know. And so it's like, I couldn't come up with these ideas on my own. No. <laughs> just, and I didn't, I, I just, I felt like I had, I had a secret that nobody else was going to talk about. And that was that women are as, as capable of men at doing anything. And, um, and I had a little posse of girlfriends and, you know, we, it was a little echo chamber of, yeah, yeah, no, you know, right. You don't need social media to have an echo chamber. (laughs) (laughs) If we think about our youth. Yeah. And, and you learn, you, I think about that age, you start to learn that you, your power on other people, you can be persuasive. You can, you can, um, convince somebody or you think you can convince somebody, uh, that you're right. And, um, I just thought that I had, I had all the answers and I was going to set it right. I was going to make it right. And I was going to infiltrate the Relief Society and make it a real Relief Society, a real women's organization. (laughs) This just makes me laugh. And, um, and I think it's partly the, um, you know, the way things have changed a lot in this generation about how we, what, how we value women's work, what is traditionally done by a woman. Um, the Young Women's Program at that time was all about being a mom. And the Young Men's Program was scouts and having fun and camping and developing your skills. And I just thought, well, why aren't they studying to be dads? You know, how come we don't get to go camping and, you know, build fires and do all that fun stuff? Girls camp. River rafting. Yeah, yeah. And call it church, you know. (laughs) We have to crochet. We have to needlepoint and all this stuff. So, anyway, my obstacle was pride and prejudice against members. No, I, I just thought everybody's a hypocrite. I didn't want to go to church. My mom made me go to church and play the organ. And I sat up there and just wrote my own little critique of what was going on. And... And I just, I didn't believe any of it because I thought it was exclusive of, I thought it was only for men and it was designed for men to make them feel better about themselves. <laughs> Did you end up leaving? So that's after kind of an obstacle. Then, well, yeah. Is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As soon as I could, I ran away from home a few times. Um, and when I finally um, graduated from high school, I did leave. And I had a I had a scholarship. I went to the University of Utah. I went away to um, I did my last year of college in Germany as an exchange student, and that's where I got my um, that's where I I got a challenge that I could not overcome, and and it was it just humbled me to the depths. I was uh, I my university professors told me that I could. I'd be good. I could slide right into class and um, understand and be able to do my work. And and I got there and, and I German. couldn't even ask. I couldn't even ask for the she things was, I wanted. She was and a good German student, but it was all book learning. Could, it was, yeah, <laughs> but but she was then, you know, to study in German was different. 
yeah, to do the coursework in German was was way beyond me, and um, and I was suicidal. I just I just thought this is this is too much for me. Plus, I was away from my circle of friends, my support, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't I I didn't want to I didn't want to fail, um, and I didn't want to. Um, leave a mess for somebody else to clean up. <laughs> but I really, I was really thinking about suicide um, would be the only way out. And, uh, and I am. Um, That's heavy. Yeah, it was, it was bad. And um, I went back to my little uh, room where I, I had a private room where it was the bed and the desk. And it was kind of like a, I felt like a test animal. You know, and I had, my German English dictionary there and and nothing else to look at. It was just dismal, dismal, dismal. And I I, I remember um, looking at um, over a, a bridge and thinking that I could I could jump from there and then I I went home and I sat there and I just um, I said the first audible prayer that I'd ever really said. I I had I, I really prayed from the heart. And I said, um, if there is anybody out there, if there's anybody that can hear or know what I'm feeling, I need to know that I'm not really alone. And um, I had such a powerful um, witness that it, I was just overwhelmed. And I, uh, and I had an undeniable answer that, okay, there is something else out there. But I, uh, I looked for anything but at the church. And, um, but I had a roommate there who was, he's from Indonesia. And he kept asking me about questions about the church because he knew I was from Utah. And he said, well, you're a Mormon. I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, tell me why Mormons um, do this. Tell me, do they really think that you should have more than one wife? And all these just really questions. And I said, I don't want to talk about it, Hassan. Um, because I don't believe any of it, and he, but he kept asking me, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to call the Mormon missionaries, and you're going to—they're going to get you." <laughs> and he said, "You have to call because they probably only speak English, you know, so we're we're speaking in German." And and so I called them up, and they said, "Well, yeah, we'd love to teach your friend." I said, "But it's not me. I don't believe it. I know. Okay, but if you're a good friend, you'll you'll come with him and help him, you know, feel comfortable." talking with us. And I said, all right. And he said, uh, the elder said, well, we can't get with you until Monday, but you could come to church on tomorrow. And my friend could overhear this. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to church. (laughs) Okay. All right. Tell us where the church is. (laughs) And, uh, we, we, got on the streetcar. We, we left in plenty of time the next day. And, um, I got, we got off the streetcar and we walked up and down the street and there was nothing, there was no church, anything looking like a church there. And so I thought, well, that was just a prank. So we're getting back on the streetcar and I looked across the street and there was a plaque, maybe nine by nine, you know, that said Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was the church. It was just a flat that mm-hmm. had, uh, a, a sign like this on the on the gate, and I saw that, and there were some missionaries standing on the porch waving at us. And so we went over there, and um, 
and uh, and as soon as I walked in, um, I felt that same kind of your home. This is this is where you belong. You don't um, you're not alone. You know we're we're people are aware of you. You know there's there's more to life than what you know, and. Um, and um, they took Hassan and me into this little windowless room and showed us a film strip of the first vision with the sound on the cassette tape. And then they flipped <laughs> the, the picture. And as soon as the music started, I mean, I knew all the hymns because I'd played them since I was 14. It started with the bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and then there's a boy walking through this field and um, and again the spirit just resonated with me and I just I couldn't deny it and I but the whole time I wanted I was like this can't be true this is the stupidest story this is so impossible how can this be true you know just fighting it did you almost leave uh, no, no, because Hassan <laughs> sat there and it was just, who's this? No, and um, no, I just, I was just glued, glued to my chair and just glued to looking at that and truly considering it for the first time if that was true. And, and God let me know, that is true. And you've got to figure out what, what Joseph Smith did and where it fits in with it, what you, what you know is right. And, um. And so this is longer about me than it should be. But the, there was a sister missionary Same there. We, we had a sacrament meeting after that. And, um, and I, you know, for the first time ever, I, I'd really thought about the sacrament. And I thought, I, I want to take that. I, I want to take that. I need that. But I didn't take it. And one of the this sister missionaries stood up and said, um, she, I'm still critical me, and I was judging her German. <laughs> um, and she said afterward, when she looked out at the crowd, she said, when I saw you, I knew you were the whole reason I came to Germany. And um, and she, you know, the elders handed Hassan and me over to her. So she and her companion came on Monday and she was from Huntsville, Utah, which is only about 40 minutes away from where I grew up. And her companion was from Salzburg. And she's, her mother had left the church over women's rights in the ERA. And she could answer all of my questions and concerns with the scriptures. And she, I, for the first time, I felt like somebody really took my questions seriously and showed me what the scriptures say and what what the true gospel teachings are and not necessarily what our culture practices so that that was my big obstacle was overcoming my prejudice and um pride so when i and i i it was a big surprise to my circle of friends and um but I, I felt reborn. I felt like a new person. And I, um, I, the missionaries had me work with them a little bit. And, um, and a lot of my friends in Germany actually 
met with the missionaries because they could see something had happened to me. And um, there was a curiosity. <laughs> um, and I told this sister that was so instrumental, her name was Susan Engstrom, I told her, I think I, I think I want to go on a mission. And, and she, she opened up DNC 4, and she said, if you have the desire to the work, you are called. And I, I did. I felt it. Okay, I'm called. Plus, I needed the extra repentance points. <laughs> and I, so I went home, and I put in my papers for a mission, and I got called right back to Germany. But the pretty part, southern part of Germany. <laughs> Not the industrial side. Yeah, and then, but I had never had a, I had never had a boyfriend who was a believing member of the church. I'd never had a, you know, I, and so, I, I had prejudice about Mormon men too. <laughs> but Marty, Marty overcame all those. Uh, yep, he could. Uh, he was just so fun to talk to about it. made me feel listened to and helped me understand. So thank you. Thank you both <laughs> for sharing your, your stories. That's a beautiful testimony on both ends and both perspectives and both hundred percent different lives but coming yeah. together to create a whole in the end. Yeah. Thank you for coming. I think we're gonna have to have you on again, right? No. Crew? <laughs> but thank you. We, we appreciate your time tonight. It's nice to be with you. It's, it's a blessing to be here. We're, we are grateful to be in the Idaho Boise Mission. It's true. It's been it's, it's been, been so such fun a, to, such a treat to be here to have a calling we can serve together. together. Kind of feels like a three year date. <laughs> um, yeah. So someone said that being the, being the temple president was like a three year honeymoon. It's not felt like no, honeymoon, but no. It does feel like a date. <laughs> With about a good date and a bad day. Kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've had over five hundred missionaries because of COVID, we've had over five hundred missionaries. Incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, they're fortunate to have you two as mentors and pseudo parents for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind. We're we're really grateful we're here. And uh, I'm grateful I'm with Louise. She's been uh, that's an I mean it's really I hear, I've heard her tell that story obviously before, and it's just such a powerful reminder of, of the, the love that God has for His children. And he, well, when you when you're you have friends, it. you have neighbors who have that need in their lives, and they can feel that too. You read in the prodigal son that he came to himself, you know, and what that means is, I, I, you know, something different for for everyone, but. You, you come to who you truly are, your true eternal self. I think, you know, it's, it, the mortal puts on all kinds of things on, on our little spirit self. But um, I think it's all, a, it's all becoming and a, a, a way to belong and feel like um, you're here for a reason. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One Heart, One Mind Nampa. Credit is given to Kim Keller, who oversees the podcast, both Lindy Bauer and Kim Keller, who are our hosts, Casey Maddox, the project director and announcer, Rachel Bauer, who is our site director, 
Likewise, thanks also to Kayla Christensen, our project manager, John Freeman, our communications coordinator, Jesus Gomez, the key grip and podcast editor, Don Ricker, our digital platform manager, Rich Petrie, and DJ Holiday for final edits. Thank you for listening to One Heart, One Mind. We hope that you have felt inspiration and hope in moving towards Zion. As always, thank you, and may the Lord bless you.